and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Ros Taylor. We talk a lot on The Bunker and Oh God, What Now? about what we'd like people to be thinking about politics, Brexit, Covid, but what are they really thinking? Are we as divided over lockdowns and vaccines as we were over Brexit? And how have people's opinions changed as a result of the pandemic? Indeed, have they changed at all? Today, I'm talking to Bobby Duffy and Paula Surridge. Bobby is Director of the Policy Institute at King's College London, and Paula is Deputy Director of the UK in a Changing Europe, a think tank based at King's and a sociologist at the University of Bristol. Both have carried out reams of research on public opinion around COVID and Brexit. Hello, Bobby. Hello, Paula. Hi, Ros. Hello. Bobby is co-author of the research that was out last month, and that showed nearly half of Britons think that if you lost your job during the pandemic, it was at least partly your fault. Bobby, that was quite a striking finding. And does it does it mean people were resentful about things like furlough as well? Or is that viewed very differently? Uh, yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I think it was a surprise as a result. Uh, we didn't expect people to think it was so much people's personal responsibility in an indiscriminate pandemic that can affect anyone to have half of people say actually it's down to your personal uh, performance at work that you, you may have lost your job is a surprise but it reflects a kind of very strong focus on meritocracy within Britain that it's an individual's responsibility to succeed in many ways and it's a strong theme uh, in in lots of countries and, and Britain is one of those where it comes out uh, quite high uh, but you're, you're right to point out about furlough, though. Those people view that as very differently. So you'll see eight or nine out of 10 people supporting the furlough scheme um, because they recognise the, the extraordinary circumstances that we're in. But they also see it as a one-off. This is not a sea change in people's attitudes to how government should support individuals. It's very much seen as an emergency measure, not for the long term. Britons do think inequality exists, according to your survey. But what you found was that they mostly think it exists between different regions of the UK, rather than between, say, men and women, or the richer and the poorer, or different generations. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, well, what we actually found was that people uh, think that inequalities between deprived and uh, more affluent areas is one of the top most serious issues in Britain, actually alongside income and wealth inequality. So those two are kind of on a par. Uh, And then you get quite a big gap to other types of inequalities, particularly around characteristics like gender or race. So they they come quite a long way down the list. So we, we do have this very strong sense of area-based inequality. And it's not, it's not necessarily just regions that people are thinking about there. It, it could be very local communities and the difference between areas in your local experience, or it could be between towns and cities. It could be all sorts of things. I don't think from the, bits of this research, looking at uh, how it breaks down across the public, this certainly isn't a north-south divide or a simple regional issue. People in London, for example, are just as likely to say that this is a big issue. So I think what we've got is a really rich picture there of people thinking where you live is affecting your life chances more than it should do. And that's a that's a really important message for the government related to that levelling up agenda that they are focusing on very strongly, is that this really does chime with people. Uh, but it's also a complex picture that has lots of elements to it. It's not a very simple sort out the north-south divide. There's, there's much more to it than that. 
For me, the fact that generational divides had so little salience was quite surprising because that seems to me something that's increased in the last few years, a sense that older generations are getting, relatively speaking, much better off than younger ones. Does it hold true for the young as well, by which I mean that do young people also think that generational divides don't uh, aren't really salient? Yeah, that's a really good point. And as I'm just finishing a book on generational differences and whether we, we really have a generational war coming. And I, I was surprised too that you, that it comes down quite so low <clears throat> in people's uh, priority list. Um, and no, to answer your question, um, the young people are not particularly more likely to say it's an issue. In fact, slightly older profile to people saying that divisions between old and young are uh, important or inequalities between old and young are important. And this is, and this is uh, partly because we haven't uh, quite caught up in public opinion that, that there has been this shift in economic success or economic resources from young to old, that, that wages have stagnated for the young, the older have got slightly better off in terms of pension. So we've had this rebalancing, but it hasn't really picked up in public imagination. And I'm, you know, having focused on generational differences for a number of years now, there's lots of reasons for that. There's lots of reasons why people will not think those inequalities are are very uh, important or that the government should act on it. It's partly because we're very connected up and down the generations. We don't particularly want to take things from our parents and grandparents because we love them but it also may put more burden on us uh, we also can see the future in older people that if you start to deal if you start to take things off older people now it's not a great signal for what it's going to be like when we're older and then third we we do have this really strong sense of contribution being important to what you should get out of the system that people who contribute should get something back and obviously old people have been older people have been around for longer contributed more and that's that sense of contributory principle in our welfare system or uh, dealing with inequalities is is really really important to people generally so it's not just about our own families Uh, so it's, it's actually not that strong a divide in the country we never find people saying let's take things from the old to give to the young even though there has been this rebalancing in income, wealth and inequalities between the two groups. You say that pandemic hasn't really changed attitudes to inequality very much yet. Mm. And that's, of course, contrary to what many on the left in particular would like to think. There is a an urge, I should say, perhaps on the left, a hope that the pandemic offers a bit of a reset and it will change people's views and open their eyes to inequality. Why do you think that hasn't happened? Yeah, I think that's, again, a really important point where you're saying yet there in in that question. And I think this is early days within the pandemic and the response. We have still got a lot of support going into the economy and individuals, uh, jobs, uh, protection, all of those types of things have meant that we haven't really seen the full impact of it. And so it's early days, I think, is one thing to say, is it? and that we haven't seen it unfold fully and people's opinions uh, and attitudes may change. But I think uh, the underlying point here, though, is that these are quite stable values for people. They're quite tied up in our political and social identities, our attitudes to inequality. So they don't shift very much as part of the work, the research that we're doing, uh, feeding into the IFSC's Deaton Review of Inequalities, we, we also look back at all of the old data on 
people's attitudes to inequalities and what they want government to do. And if you, as far back as you can go, which is mostly the early 1980s in Britain, at about the same proportion of people have always said that the gap between rich and poor is too high. It's, you get 70-ish percent of people saying that. And then the proportion of people who say that the government should act on this and should uh, do something about that is always around four in 10 or uh, that sort of level. So you've got this gap between people saying it's a problem uh, and then a lower proportion saying we should do something about it. But the key point here is it's, it's pretty stable over time and in very different contexts. And that kind of points to this point that this is not something that moves around very much because it is actually about a much broader worldview. So it's actually going to, it takes quite a lot to shift people on these types of issues. And we haven't seen that yet. So perhaps we're not ready for the 1945 moment that the left have been calling for a reimagining of the welfare state, if you like. Yes, that's what it seems like. Certainly not yet. And I think uh, you can see why. I think it is true that in times of crises, the idea that people have a a stronger social imagination about what could come next and that sense of actually you just don't replicate what we had before, but you can think of different ways to do things is certainly true, but it's also quite rare. It is a, a rare event when people do that. And actually what you often find is that when people are un- under crisis and under strain, we actually get more focused on the here and now rather than the big picture. So you've got to remember that there is this, there will be this pressure that brings us back to the very current present realities rather than the big picture dream of what the future could be like. That's just the kind of natural sense of human nature is we will focus on the immediate in these types of crises. So yes, there's definitely this opportunity to reimagine, but it won't come easy. Uh, and actually there's a lot of uh, pressure and tension that will pull you back to the more immediate and the here and now. And it doesn't suggest that an idea like the universal basic income has much chance of support, does it? Because while furlough, it basically involves handouts of a, of a kind of a, is quite analogous to it to a UBI, that you say the contributory principle is so important to people that yeah. they don't want to tolerate furlough for very long. Yeah, no, exactly. I think, again, with the growth of AI and with the growth of automation, this is not something that people have massively picked up on, that there is this sense of there may be less work in the future and more need for a different way of thinking about how you support people and, and how the, the centrality of work relative to support from government. And it, we're just a long way off people having that in their minds. We haven't seen the direct impacts of that enough across the economy. People are not have not shifted in their opinions to think that we're in a position where that is uh, necessary. And as you say, that strong sense of personal responsibility, individual responsibility, you have to bear in mind that we've had decades of people moving in a more individualistic direction, that uh, selling point of actually we need to look at this differently is going to take people quite a while to come to terms with. Paula, can I turn to you now? Because you've carried out some very interesting research on leavers and remainers. And even now Brexit is done, a majority of people still identify as one or the other. Tell us what unites leavers, first of all, in terms of their attitudes. 
So first of all, I'd say that there's some evidence that those identities are starting to wane a little bit. The Talk Together report that came out last week suggested that people were becoming more likely to pick party identities again rather than leave and remain identities. And so there's a a possibility that those leave and remain identities might now be reattaching themselves to to some of the older divisions um, around party identity, which is something worth watching. The other thing to think about with leavers and remainers is we're talking about really big groups. So even bigger than the, than the kind of groups that normally vote for any individual party at an election. So there are divides within them as well as between them. And we don't, I don't, I don't think it's always helpful to think of them as completely unified in terms of their attitudes. But what we tend to find is that the thing that, the, that unites the leave vote are their social attitudes rather than their economic attitudes. They tend to be less liberal on social attitudes. And one thing I've noticed um, repeatedly looking at the data on what their priorities are behind kind of the economy and Brexit, which has been everybody's priority for the last year, they also place quite a high priority on issues around crime and immigration as well, um, which is another feature of that leave vote, which sometimes gets a little bit left out. Um, of the discussion. And how about Remainers? What characteristics are there that tend to unite them? So the Remainers, on average, tend to be um, a little bit more highly qualified. They tend to be more likely to be graduates. They're more likely in their priorities to say things like the environment are their top priority. But equally, there are divides within that Remain group as well. Um, And there are some quite distinctive groupings within that between the very left wing liberal voters that that voters remain. But those that then stayed loyal to the Conservatives in 2019, who tend to be a little bit more concerned about the economy, but still quite liberal on the other set of issues, um, but tended to be remain supporters because actually they were quite concerned about the impact of Brexit on the economy rather than on the social issues, perhaps. To return to what we were talking about earlier with with Bobby, is this largely a generation gap? I mean, clearly, people who are younger are more likely to have been to university in this country. But is it is it much more complex than that? It is much more complex than that. When you do any um, modelling of this, where you include both generation and education um, around leave and remain voting, then education tends to be the more powerful. Um, explanation or powerful predictor of whether someone was a leave or remain supporter rather than age Um, and we find actually you know remain supporters amongst those who went to university but are in the older generations um, just as much as in the younger generations so I think it's it's something that quite often gets seen as a generation gap because we get a lot of polling which gives us breakdowns by age and not by education and obviously we've got that increase in the number of people going into higher education that gets tangled up within that story. Bobby you looked at how support for leave maps on to lockdown scepticism and several high profile lockdown skeptics also happen to be enthusiastic leavers. I mean, you know, the front page of the Telegraph often will give you a rundown of them. But that doesn't hold true for leavers at large, does it? No, that's right. We exactly seeing that kind of trend of, uh, particularly in the commentators and some politicians, that there was this apparent overlap between the two groups. We, We had a look at the underlying values of leavers and remainers and those who were 
sceptical about lockdown versus those who were supportive of lockdown. And, and what you find underlying that is very different profiles of attitudes between the two groups. That And actually, the lockdown support brings together quite a lot of the values that, that would divide Libras and Remainers. So that is things like uh, focusing on security values and universalism. They, they are effectively the two things that uh, were most focused on in terms of support for lockdown. And that actually brings together two of the big trends from uh, what Leavers and Remainers, each of Leavers and Remainers had. Uh, so a, a lot of focus, the actual split between the two groups is wiped out by this support for lockdown. That's really important because if you've got this alignment of values or underlying concerns between uh, lockdown scepticism and uh, levers, then you've, you're starting to put together something that looks more and more like a culture war, where you're, you're rolling in lots of different issues where your political identities, your, your political identification it becomes predictive of your views or attitudes on lots and lots of different things. And what this shows is actually it... it brings people together across the leave-remain divides and doesn't reinforce uh, those underlying values. Could this be part of the reason why Nigel Farage has just announced his retirement from politics again, it has to be said? (laughs) His his new reform party was going to oppose lockdowns along with things like cycle lanes and so on. Uh, But he now seems to be retreating from that as he decided that he just can't tap into the same ready audience that he found with um, the Brexit party and UKIP. Yes, no, I think that's right. I think that's exactly right. I think the, uh, the got to bear in mind that the lockdown sceptics, proper lockdown scepticism is quite a rare attitude. So it's not lots and lots of people that you would attract by that. But but in some ways, that isn't the key aspect of Nigel Farage's and the Reform Party's initial, uh, you know, th- their power is in attracting people in order to move the main parties towards them. That is what happened with Brexit. And that what potentially could have been what was, was happening here. But you'll see very quickly, Nigel Farage switched from lockdown scepticism to things like cycle lanes and protection of motorists, precisely because this is not the sort of group that uh, comes together very easily. So yes, I don't think there would have been a strong future in having that as a core aspect of your uh, offer. Because it's a small population, that's true, and it's going to die out. But also, you've got to bear in mind these values divisions, that it doesn't bring people together across that spectrum. It actually splits them up. I sometimes wonder if all the fury over over lockdown in some quarters almost functions as an escape valve. You know, people read this stuff because they're really frustrated and annoyed, but they don't actually necessarily believe it or want to defy it. They, it just, it just helps psychologically, but that's a whole other discussion. Um, Paula, yeah. you, we talked, uh, Bobby's already talked about the um, culture war and, and so on and whether the findings we've seen here help to mitigate against the idea of a culture war like that we see in the US where um, where where Trump supporters for example are very anti-mask and all these all these issues are bundled up together do you do you have hope that we're not going to fall into the same trap ourselves in the UK as well so i do have some hope that we're not going to fall into a a very polarised two-camp culture war type of situation, um, precisely for some of the reasons Bobby's already given. When you look at lockdown scepticism, when you look at whether people think we should protect lives or the economy, 
if they can actually be separated. What we see is attitudes to these kinds of issues um, are more strongly related to people's attitudes to the economy more generally, to their to their left-right values in, in the old way of thinking about it, than they are to the liberal authoritarian values that connected with leave and remain. So what we get is this kind of situation where these are cross-cutting and, and making distinctive fragments within the electorate but not merging those into two big opposing groups and I think although that makes our politics quite volatile and it makes it very very difficult to analyze it does protect us a little bit from going into a, going into that kind of two-camp polarization that we see in the US. What's your next set of research looking into Paula? So obviously there's a a set of local and devolved elections coming up. Um, So I'm interested in looking at how values and um, nationalism play into some of to some of those elections. Um, But I'm also really keeping a very close eye on these post-COVID divides and whether the kind of connection to the left-right dimension will will bring that back into salience in our politics after having a long period where the divide that connected leave and remain was dominating. So those are the things I'm looking into at the moment. That'll be fascinating. And how about you, Bobby? What are you working on next? Well, it's actually that culture war theme. Um, We've got a big report coming out post-Easter where we've uh, had a look at the theory and experience from the US on how did culture wars develop um, uh, and the different, different perspectives on that. And then we've done... Two, two other things. We've looked at the media content in the UK, tracking that over the last 15, 10, 15 years. That just shows an absolute explosion of discussion of culture wars in the media, which fits quite well with this, this view that it's actually a top-down created situation, uh, the growth of culture wars, rather than something that's bubbling up from b- below. And then the, the third element of that study will be a big survey of what do people actually understand by culture wars? Do they recognise it? And how does it relate to division and polarisation more generally? Um, just trying to get some higher quality data on where people are to compare that with the story they're being told from the media and social media. So uh, trying to unpick that picture, but within some sort of sense of conceptual framework of what actually are the culture wars and what can we learn from history elsewhere. It's been fascinating, hasn't it, to see how the views on vaccines in particular have changed. You know, a few months back, I was worried that the support for vaccines was just so relatively low, not as low as in France, admittedly, or the US, but still low. But now we see enormous uptake. And it just shows how quickly public opinion can change under the right conditions. Yes, that's right. And where you're not trying to link decisions like that to underlying political or social identities, where it's uh, much more based on evidence and efficacy. Um, and, that, and that is the, the crux of, of this, is uh, uh, understanding how much and how we can keep uh, those types of discussions separate from those uh, more polarising and emotional political identity issues. Amen to that. Bobby and Paula, thanks so much for joining us. You can follow the King's Policy Institute's tracking of public attitudes and behaviour on coronavirus by searching for Policy Institute Kings. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider backing us on Patreon. Just search for Bunker Patreon. I'm Ros Taylor. Thanks for listening. The Bunker Daily was presented by Ros Taylor. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelna Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, 
Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. <laughs>